Welcome to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm film critic April Wolf. Every week, I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, a director, actor, producer, and we talk in depth about a fave genre film of theirs, maybe one that influenced their own work. And today, I'm so very happy to welcome one of my favorite actors in genre and all other cinema, uh, Lynn Shea. Thank you. What a beautiful introduction. Would you come home with me, too? I will. I will. I'll just be a little little parrot in right. your, your ear just telling you how great you are. Thank you. Um, for those who are not familiar with Lynn Shea's work, I don't know where you've been living, uh, but I will give you a little background just in case. Uh, Lynn moved to Los Angeles in the late 70s to pursue acting and ended up cast in an onslaught of films that came to be classics, uh, portraying a slew of memorable supporting characters who remain etched in movie lovers' consciousness to this day. Remember the teacher in Nightmare on Elm Street? Uh, the one who had to snap Nancy out of her classroom dream? Or maybe the sarcastic police dispatcher in Critters? Or Critters 2? Um, or how about the gruesome, sex-obsessed landlady in Kingpin? Gruesome? And- <laughs> gruesome? <laughs> okay, I'll take it. <laughs> She's so great. She was hungry. Yeah. My, my my husband and I were doing the, the tongue right. thing last night to each other because we were like, Lynn's coming on the podcast. You guys seriously look that up. Okay. She's she's great physical actor. Uh, and how about the neighbor in uh, There's Something About Mary? When she wasn't in blockbusters, she's always doing small gems in cult hits like Dead End, another great one with Ray Wise, and then Snakes on a Plane with Sam L. Jackson. Sam Jackson. It's so good. And in 2011, <laughs> she joined the film Insidious as the psychic Elise Rainier. Um, becoming a fan fave again and winning the Saturn Award for Best Supporting Actress. Lynn stayed on with the Insidious franchise through the second and third installments, and this year's star, and this year she stars in Insidious, The Last Key, for which she has been doing endless press uh, interviews for. Cor- correct. correct. Wonderful endless press, <laughs> may I add. It's impossible to hit all the highlights of Lynn's career in a single bio, but we'll get to some others in the discussion as we talk. Um, today, Lynn has chosen to talk about another a classic film, uh, The Shining, Stanley yeah. Kubrick's The Shining. Can you tell us a little bit about why you chose that film today? Jack Nicholson might be my big, <laughs> my, my big. Um, actually, I do have a wonderful story about Jack Nicholson, um, which is what led me to Los Angeles. Yeah, and um, he was like one of the the first uh, uh, in one of the first movies that you were in. As that's well. right, yes. in Going South. Yes, and there is a wonderful story. It's a little bit lengthy, but I'll try and make it short. Um, I was living in New York and had I, I was a theater actress. I was not interested in film. I didn't care about film. I grew I grew up loving theater, loving live act, live action basically. Mm-hmm. Um I had been hired to do the George Bernard Shaw Candid Candide with Eva Marie Saint in oh, Boston. Okay. I was so excited it was to play the character Prosy, which is her secretary if anyone knows the play. It's a, a brilliant George Bernard Shaw play. I got fired. <laughs> I got fired because, which I didn't even recognize until about a year later when I read the letter they sent me. I looked like I was 12 years old on stage at that time in my life. I'm, I, I look a lot older now, but I, I really looked like a child. And the the character, Prossy, had to only be three years younger than um, than the Candide character, and Eva Marie Saint was really in her fifties then, and she looked, you know, she looked like she was. She, I looked like her her child rather oh, than no. her secretary. So I was devastated. We were supposed to do it in Boston at their um, at their wonderful Rep Theater there, 
and I got a rash. <laughs> I was this all lead, I'll explain all this in a minute. I get a phone call from my agent at the time who said, um, Jack Nicholson and his gang were just in New York. They were seeing actors for uh, a movie called Going South, which he's going to be shooting, and they inquired about you. So as I was scratching my rash, I said, well, 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 you know, I mean, I started stuttering. And I, I said, well, so they said, so we send them your, you know, your information and they're going back to Los Angeles tomorrow. But they said, you know, they would look at through everything. Marion Doherty actually was the casting director who was a brilliant, wonderful casting woman for years. And um, I got so excited about this prospect. So very naive, naively, but also, I guess, very smartly, I started going through all my pictures in my in my desk. Here's me with curly hair. Here's me with short hair. Here's me <laughs> with long hair. And I sent this packet with a note to Mr. Nicholson, dear Mr. Nicholson, thank you for your inquiry. Here, I'm sending you some other photos of me. And um, I was going to send it special delivery. There wasn't even FedEx yet, I don't. This was 1970. This was 77. Yeah. So, um uh, and I was just about to seal it, and at the bottom of the note, it was a little card that said the soothsayer on it, which has come to haunt me in terms of <laughs> yeah, your career. In terms of my career, basically. <laughs> so I put P.S. at the bottom. I plan to be in Los Angeles for a short visit in the next week or two, which was totally wrong. I mean, I totally made that up. Yeah. I had no intention. Sure, why not? Right, right. And about a day later, my agent calls me and says, do you know him? And I said, what? She said, we just got a call from Jack, who says he wants to meet you as soon as you're in Los Angeles. So I said, <laughs> so I said okay. <laughs> and I literally packed dirty laundry, and I got on a plane the next morning. Betty Buckley was here in L.A. doing Eight is Enough, which was a series then. Mm -hmm. She was a friend of mine from New York. She said, don't worry. I'll put you up at the Chateau. I didn't even know what the Chateau was. The Chateau <laughs> Mama. Like, cool. So I said, okay. It sounds good. <laughs> And I literally got on a plane, and I got a giant fever blister coming on the plane. I could feel my lip erupting into this huge pustule. <laughs> and I'm, but I'm like, I'm going, oh well, whatever, whatever. And um, Betty, I got to the chateau. She showed me to my bungalow. I mean, I was totally in shock. I mean, if you, I really was in shock over myself, what I was doing, and over the opportunity that was approaching. Yes. So you're I'm meeting. Jack Nicholson. I was going to meet Jack Nicholson. And they had to set up a meeting the next morning at 10 o'clock at Paramount. I called the cab company. There were no Ubers yet. I called the cab company at least 13 times to make sure they were going to be on time. I They take me to Paramount. My fever blister is now the size of my nose. <laughs> it's like the biggest thing you ever saw because my nose is not that small. And <laughs> I, I walk and I really I couldn't even hardly talk straight. I started talking like this because it was so swollen, and um, but I was in total denial basically. So I, my turn comes and they I, I walk into Jack's office, <laughs> and he had his head down and my picture was up on his bulletin board. He had just cast Mary Steenburgen, which okay, was her yeah. first role ever. And he also found her – she was a waitress and found her in the waiting room waiting for somebody. He's that guy. He really looks for those chinks in the armor in people, oh, I mean, wow. which I think is a wonderful thing it, rather than criticizing you or admonishing you for your your dilemma. He mm -hmm. capitalizes on it. So I walk in and the first thing he looks up, he says, so what happened to your mouth? <laughs> 
<laughs> and I, I said, oh, I know. I said, I was just so excited to come out here and meet you. And I said, but I didn't really just come out here to meet you. And I'm babbling like a thousand miles a minute. And he just kind of, he said, well, I know how that must be. In that classic, you know, Jack way, I know how you must feel because I've lived with an actress long enough to know how awful that would be. Well, he says, you look fine. (laughs) (laughs) And um, he went on to say, um, this is a very important movie to me because I've been wanting to get it made for a long time. And I'm directing it as well as starring in it. And um, these are for for some small roles. Um, There's four spinsters. And he said, but I would make you the parasol lady. <laughs> so I, and that was all he said. And I, I literally, it, the whole meeting took, what, two minutes, really? Yeah. And I walked out and I was like shot out of a cannon. I mean, I didn't know where I was, what I was going to do. I was, I, I, I literally felt a, a total out of body experience that I don't think I've ever quite had before. And then literally about two days later, I get a call saying, they want you in Mexico for two weeks on the movie. You are going to play the parasol lady in Going South. So Jack Nicholson, coming back to your original question, changed my life. And um, this was around the time of The Shining as well, wasn't it? The Shining, I'm not sure. It's like it's within like a few year period, probably. Yeah. Um, But I mean, I honestly, I had never, I, I had never really done a film. I had done one little tiny thing in New York on a WGBH uh, film for television with with uh, Piper Laurie, actually, which was which was just delicious, and she was also an amazing, amazingly supportive and wonderful actress, and. But here I was, my second movie, and it was – I had one line, and um, and Jack was – it was a cowboy, so he was dressed in that great, like, scummy, you know, sort of bad guy outfit with his hat. Yeah. And he had this beautiful giant bay horse they gave him to ride, and – it was really – I felt like I was in a movie, like literally that my life was a movie at that point. So um, – <laughs> Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson. Here's We're, to him. Let's talk a lot about him because this this is one of my favorite roles of his, obviously, and one where he felt and everyone else felt that he was born to play this role. Yes. And I, I would agree. Um, for those who haven't seen The Shining, I, I mean, I – you should. But if you haven't seen it, today's episode is going to give you some spoilers as Lynn and I go through this discussion. Um, but that shouldn't stop you from listening before you watch. My motto is that it's not what happens, but how it happens that makes a movie worth watching still. If you want to pause this podcast and listen and watch The Shining, go ahead and do that first. Okay, and if you're back, let's introduce The Shining. Quick uh, quick overview. Based on Stephen King's novel of the same name, The Shining was written by Diane Johnson and Stanley Kubrick and directed by Kubrick in 1980. A lot of people forget Diane Johnson was in there. Uh, Jack Nicholson stars as Jack Torrance, a teacher and struggling writer who takes a job as the caretaker of a remote mountain resort hotel during the long winter. He brings his wife Wendy, played by Shelley Duvall, and son Danny with him. And the three try to have a fun time, but the Overlook Hotel has some different plans for them. This place has a long and terrible history of caretakers going mad and butchering their families. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Danny, who's got a case of The Shining, where he can sense and feel things in the future, basically like ESP, knows something is off with his dad. And a man named Doc, who's played by the wonderful Scatman Carruthers, um, also shares Danny's shining gift and warns him to stay clear of a few things at the hotel. But mom's in denial. 
Meanwhile, Jack's slowly losing his mind, talking to ghosts in the hotel, getting angrier and angrier at Wendy, whom he blames for his failed career. Eventually, Jack's madness comes to a head, and he comes after his family with an axe. Also, here's Johnny. Here's Johnny. Okay, what's your favorite scene in this film? We'll start with that. Oh, that's a that's a hard question. There's actually, a lot of great there's scenes. There's a lot of a lot of great scenes. Probably the the chase at the end through the maze was is just it, it's heart stopping. I really it, and even though you know you kind of know how it's going to end on some level, yeah, it's just it's just it, it's shot so brilliantly. And Shelley Duvall blows me away in this movie as well as as well as Jack. Um, so I, yeah. I I don't know if a. Fa- there's so many wonderful scenes. I can't really pick one that I can think of as my favorite, but the maze uh, that comes to mind. The the whole, um, I mean, that third act is really brilliant. It's um, Shelley Duvall's performance as the the scared uh, mother and wife is, you know, goes down in history as one of the most um, full and really terrifying performances. Um, and that's... And she's the classic wife, the kind, you know, really what we what has been painted and which we are all battling right now as women. Um, the the no matter how your husband treats you, you sort of go, it's okay. I'm going to be okay, mm-hmm. and this is okay, and I'll do what you ask in a in a calm demeanor. And one of those things that I thought was really funny is or interesting rather is that Shelley Duvall said that she had gotten the part after they sent the script to her agent and they said that they were looking for a quote a tall actress with common housewife looks. So of course, you know, Duvall uh didn't think that being considered a common housewife was bad right, in any way. Right, and in right. fact, it really feeds this this film. I mean, like what would have happened if she was some kind of glamorous woman, you know, right, it's right. it's not the same it's not the same film. She is diminutive, diminutive, and she's also vulnerable. She's got that incredible vulnerability in in, in her person. That's yeah, just... and she and she knows that, and she can tap into that. And you think I think even in her um, in her um, interviews, she was very frightened, very scared. She would only say hello to the one woman that was in the room. Mm-hmm. She didn't know how to introduce herself to the men, and that was kind of a, a thing that uh, Kubrick wanted to to push into. But I'm, I'm curious, you know, she she seemed to know herself um, at the time, you know, what her uh, what her type was and her strengths. Yes. Yeah. And now as an actor, do you get these kinds of uh, character breakdowns that are just strange and weird, but you know, you can tap into that? Or, you know, do people send you specific character breakdowns because they think they know who you are? That's a great question. A classic, which again, uh, to mention, when I read the Fairley Brothers um, Kingpin, mm-hmm. I had I had done a little tiny part in Dumb and Dumber, and someone at his office, that's also a bit of a story, sent me the script, and the, the, the description of the landlady, I'll never forget it, is the angriest, ugliest woman God ever let loose on the planet. <laughs> and I literally said, I've <laughs> got to play that part. <laughs> <laughs> and I fought, and fought. they didn't want to see me for it because they said we don't really see you like that, Lynn. And they were everybody was very accommodating and 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 lovely, you know. But they were I couldn't get an audition, and I literally you're just like you're too pretty for this role. Whatever, <laughs> the, whatever they had my and I literally for six weeks, and this is not a joke. I sat in my in my bedroom on the floor, and I tried to. I thought, what would the ugliest, angriest, ugliest woman in the world look like? And I gave myself a skin. T- 
condition. I used egg. My mother used to give herself an egg white mask that her skin would like, it would flake when she'd put the, the white on her face. Yeah. So I didn't know from latex yet. <laughs> in terms of, so I literally, I was putting egg on my face and I put eyelashes coming out of my nostrils like I had long nose hairs and ran my brow together and put grease in my hair. And I, I found that outfit at, uh, at Aardvarks on Melrose Avenue uh, with this rack of, of, of old clothes they had. I literally walked and it was sort of meant to be. I saw it sticking out, oh and it was God. the right period. It was the seventies. Pete Fairley would call it my clown suit, and I <laughs> and I literally finally begged enough for to get an audition. I begged one of the producers. I said, "I've worked on this whole thing. I've got a whole presentation." Because he also said, "We don't really see you in this role, and yeah. we love your work." And so he said, "Okay, I'll bring you in." And I went dressed as that character to Santa Monica at the 1401 Ocean Avenue. Mm -hmm. And literally the parking lot attendant flung himself against a wall when I got out of my car because I was was dressed totally as this woman. And they walked by me. Um, Actually, Pete was talking about this in an article they just wrote about about Kingpin saying they thought I was a homeless woman off the street in Santa Monica. (laughs) And I finally had to go, guys, it's me. It's And then Rick Montgomery, who was the casting director, said, oh, my God. He said, oh, okay, well, we'll bring you in. And I got the job. I mean, so – so, and I would never have gotten it. I mean, if I yeah. – and so there's something in my bones about wanting to turn into other people. And I don't find any description better or worse than anything as long as it's a full description. It gives me something to to imagine. Yeah. And there's something for me as an actress that's why I'm an actress. I love trying to get into the skin of someone else's mind and soul. So I, I, <laughs> I think a lot of non-actors might feel weird about that. You know, they're like, oh, is this what they think of me? Is yeah, that, you know, like really? The- yeah. And I don't even it doesn't even ruffle anything. The only thing that would make me think that way is if they thought I was nothing. You know, I was like milk that I, I didn't have anything. Milk toast. Yeah. yeah. And um I, I mean, my own personality is what it is. I mean, <laughs> like, I mean, it's sort of it is at this point in time. It's kind of what it is. But the I, but the descriptions actually writers who write fine descriptions of their characters are heaven for an actor because it really does give you a starting point to, to of creation. Mm-hmm. So, um, but that was that was the one description that that really hit me the strongest ever of anything I've ever I've ever read about a character, and. Um, and I always try to start there. You know, what is what is said about that person? Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I'm 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 thrilled to have had that opportunity, and that character is my favorite I've ever done for real. It's the it's still my favorite character ever. Okay, so we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to get into the kinds of methods that an actor or a director might use to get into these characters, because there's some really interesting stories from The Shining, and I'd love to hear some of your perspectives on that. Okay, so we'll take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Following the news is hard and it sucks. How do you know which stories are important? Which sources do you trust in this post-truth world of reactionary journalism? I'm Brett Black. And I'm Travis McElroy. And we host a podcast called Trends Like These. We cover trending news stories. We debunk misleading clickbait headlines. And we always try to throw in a little bit of good news. In our quest for truth. So join us every week on MaximumFun.org or wherever podcasts are found. 
Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm here with the lovely Lin Shay, and we are talking about The Shining today. Um, I would love to get into what an actor has to do to get into character. You know, we were we were talking about how you get that part and how you find that character, but when you're on set, I feel like it might be a little different. Um, and one, what's become one of the most well-known stories behind The Shining is actually that Stanley Kubrick treated Shelley Duvall somewhat terribly in his attempt to put her on the edge of her sanity uh, for filming the scene where Duvall was wielding the baseball bat, which we were talking about is, you know, the whole sequence of the baseball bat through up to the maze. It's just, it's right. heart-pounding. Stay away from me! <laughs> I just want to go back to my room. Why? <laughs> I'm very confused. I just need a chance to think things over. You've had your whole fucking life to think things over. What good's a few minutes more going to do you now? Stay with me. Please. Um, she had said, quote, I remember nearly running out of breath because I just couldn't speak anymore. The tears are real in the movie. I was so tired and getting fed up with the numerous takes, I nearly walked off the set. I remember take 99 specifically. The guy came up with the clapperboard, said take 99, and I said to Jack, you've got to be fucking kidding me. <laughs> so... <laughs> That's. I'm sure it's in the movie somewhere. I, I hope so. I hope that that's like somewhere, like that clip is floating oh, right, around right, right, and right, someone's right. real somewhere. Um, so that that kind of method, like that's either cruel or quote unquote method, you know, depending on how you look at it. Duvall herself said that she was so happy with the result that she didn't care about the pain that she went through at the time. Um, and, you know, in your career, you've had to play some terrified women. Yes. Have you um, have you had anyone try to get you on edge, try to make you feel this way? Or I mean, you're a theater actor, so you've you've been trained very professionally, so you should ostensibly be able to just kind of get yourself into that moment, right? Right. right. But how how do you work? How does how has that worked for you? Um, generally, it's it's almost like you have to you have to figure out the communication between you and the director as well. I have had directors. Um, I, I'm pretty emotionally at my surface, I mean, yeah. which for better and for worse, by the <laughs> way. <laughs> it doesn't always work in my favor. But <laughs> but, um, but as an actress, it truly does. I mean, I'm able – I am able to um, create, I think, what I need to create for for fear and for uh, – as a matter of fact, that, that one scene in the first Insidious – um, where I look up, I'm in Dalton's uh, bedroom, and it's the first time I look up at the fan, yeah. and I see, I, I see the the, the red faced demon. Yeah, we shot that on the second day of filming, and I remember James Wan said, "So okay, so you look up there and you see something scary." That was, <laughs> and he said, "It's the red." And um, you look up there and, and you I, see, I, something, see something scary. scary. You directors out there, aspiring directors. <laughs> But I, not to diminish James Wan, but but to to, uh, to amplify his his faith in me. Exactly, I, you work really, with a good actor, yeah, and you say like, "This is this what, is what I need." Can you do it? You yeah, know, do it. So there really was that moment of uh, it's it's kind of it's it, part of its muscle memory, part of it is pretending, mm -hmm. part of it is is manufacturing images in your head. I mean, I never know a hundred percent for sure what's going to work. 
Um, but in this situation, the only thing, as we were looking up, I remember there was no dialogue written. And I start talking because I, I start I start talking about what I'm seeing. It gives me goose pimples now a little Ooh. bit. And Lee Winnell, who plays Specs, is 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 writing and drawing. And actually, I had seen the picture of what it was that actually James Wan did those drawings. Oh, he the, did. Yeah, okay. which are quite wonderful and beautiful. He's really he's that's a whole other that's a whole other podcast. He's, um, yeah, he's changed he, he's changed the climate of, yes, of totally. horror films and completely. what a, what a brilliant, wonderful person he is in every respect. Nothing has changed except his brilliance keeps getting brighter. That's about all I can say about James. But so I remember sort of seeing the picture and we started talking and I I don't know exactly even to this moment exactly what it is I'm saying, but I remember James saying to me, say it has has hooves for feet. Slow down. Slow down. What is it? So I remember that one moment he kind of where I, I put that in there and that's in the film. Yeah. And you sort of you don't all you don't hear it's kind of like you hear bits and pieces of arms, hands, whatever it is I'm talking about. Yeah. And then you hear that final thing, it has hooves for feet and there's it was just chilling. And so So that was all made up. In in the moment, in the moment, hmm. totally like in the that. moment, and we did. I t- instead of ninety nine takes, we probably did one. <laughs> <laughs> I think we got it. We had it. You know, if it was maybe we did two because there was something technical or whatever. Yeah, but. Um, Again, I think it is a trust matter between actor and director as well. Really, these these guys, James Wan, Lee Winnell, Adam Robitel as well. I classify them as genius in what they do. Lee has written all four of these episodes, and they are not fluff. They are beautiful, crafted stories. And you've been in a lot of these things. You know what's good and what's not. I do. I feel like I honestly do. I I never gave myself credit for knowledge because I never think I'm smart about anything for real. I mean, that's also an old Midwestern. Yeah, I I feel it. I mean, you're really bringing up some... Some deep things for me. <laughs> really? I mean, but, you know, so I'm always very I, – I doubt myself all the time. But at the same time, I've gotten close enough to my own intuitions and enough reassurance from people who have received my – you know, my, my feelings and my thoughts to um, – to give me confidence, really. Yeah. But there's always something to learn. That's the other thing. And different sure. different people require different different techniques of of uh, communication and expression. And I think as an actor and as an actress, when you're on set, those are very important skills to have. Yes. That people need – some people need to be explained one way and some people need it another. And it's up to us as an actor if you need something from your director to kindly – and uh, efficiently express what you're needing at the time. I wanted to get into a little bit of your history. I, I heard somewhere that you had studied art history. Yeah. And um, and I love it when, when actors have these paths of you know, things that they try to bring into what their, their craft is. Um, but I wanted to talk about the production design of this place, the, this hotel, you know, this whole oh, movie. Because so- Roy Walker's production design and Les Tompkins' art direction for The Shining, they're, you know, widely considered some of the best work that is ever seen on film at this point. 
And you still have uh, people sorting through all these decisions that Kubrick and the art team made and analyzing them to look for hidden meaning, like the documentary Room 237. I'm not sure if you saw that. Um, but as an art history you know, person, a, a buff, uh, were there other times that you get on set and you just admire the work that goes into creating this kind of fictional world? Or you know, do you ever have any times where you're like, oh, I wish that this was better? Because yeah. Shelley Duvall, there was a really great story about her. Um, like the production design was so good and so specific that she thought the the bathroom that they constructed was real. And she <laughs> she used a toilet. Yeah, she used a toilet and got in trouble because it's not functional. And she couldn't flush it. And she couldn't flush it. And she was like, oh my God, I thought that this was a real bathroom. But they had made the bathroom. And so she was like, what? That's hilarious. I never heard that story. I love all the references to the Native American spiritual thing. Those beautiful murals in The Shining. Yeah. That one and and where they zoom in. I can't remember exactly what the shot is, but these, these beautiful... Um, which we all know the Native American culture is steeped in uh, mythology and in um, reverence. And if you are irreverent, you get punished for that on some level. Mm-hmm. And so, I, just speaking about that, that art, the art direction of, of The Shining was inc- was one most beautiful. I thought the hotel itself is extraordinary, but everything there, of course, was designed by them. Yeah, every prop, every painting, mural, all, everything yeah. is gorgeous. Yeah, it is really something. Um, I just watched it, most of it again yesterday. I lost. I was watching it on, on my computer. My computer went dead, and so I never saw the ending. <laughs> <laughs> but I knew how it ended. Thank so it was God okay, you know how right? it ends. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> Did I spoil it for you, Lynn? God. (laughs) But in terms of my my personal experience, um, yes, I'm always in awe of what is created by the art, uh, you know, the art directors in in different films. And when the less money they have, the sparser it can be, but sometimes not. I mean, depending on – we just shot – actually, I I did this – a small film called Gothic Harvest that we shot in uh, New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And it was actually shot in this mansion that, that was from – it's this old, beautiful mansion. I think it was used in um, – oh, it was used in um, one of the the famous miniseries about the Old South. And it really is a mansion from the 1920s oh. and, and has the same old floors. And, and so they – the, what they did to enhance it didn't matter almost. Mm-hmm. You know, in other words, we had a very small budget. and But the, the feeling, and the really is, you talk about ghosts. I'm, you know, people ask me that all the time. Do you yeah. believe in ghosts? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I try not to offend anything. Yeah. <laughs> just in case. You don't just know. Just in case. Just in, because you really do get a sense of, I know, that gives me chills to even say that. What's going on in this, in this control room? Um, but there, there really is an atmosphere that is that is penetrating. I mean, in certain places, I think real places have real, real penetration. Mm-hmm. And I think you can manufacture an old home and put old things around and, um, and you know, create that effect. But there really is something to be said about real places and what they what they offer. And so I have a great regard for building, uh, for instance, uh, they wanted to make Elise's um the seance room, you know, where I give oh, se- yeah. I give seances um, in in Insidious, um, t- 
you know, she sort of peopled it with things that uh, that I love. Like there's horses. I have a horse, and I'm a, I love animals. And so they tried mm-hmm. to hear from me what were things that meant something to me. And um, the art design had elements of it. Actually, had a pinball machine because I I have two pinball machines in my real house. And I think it was Lee Winnell said, "Let's you know, let's put as many things that affect Lynn yeah. as we can." And that was all kind of subliminal because they didn't really discuss it with me. Yeah, but it was really very um uh very it was again penetrating you know to walk into a place that already felt like it had things in it that meant something to me and that yeah. elicited something from me because of that so um what's around you as an actor i think has a tremendous impact on your performance at least it does for me i try and use whatever is around me um that's that's old uda hagen Actor studio stuff. What are your objects? What do you have in your hand? What did you do right before you walked in the room? Mm-hmm. Um, what's that, you know, the dish towel that's sitting there? Did you just use it? Did you pick it up? You pick it up. You end up using it for something to clean something or to, you know, that the, the things around you give life to the character. So I always look for things like that. You know, I, my, the, the, the set is not just a set. I have to live in it. And I love – and often what I think about the scene changes depending on where I am. Like all of a sudden I never realized there was a bed in the room. There'd be a bed or there'd be, you know, there'd be um, certain pictures on the wall. Yeah. There's, there's a scene in, also in Insidious where there's a, a – a, it's going to make me emotional thinking about it. Crazy. Aww. I go. I mean, I go right there. The um, just of a of a, a mother and father, and and then a bride and a groom. And for some reason, I just clicked into something, and it did something to me. Sort of, sort of putting faces on those people that meant something to me, and it changed the scene. Yeah. For for those of you who can't see, which is everyone, Lynn's eyes actually did just start <laughs> tearing up. So, the second, like that's a that's an amazing <laughs> ability. You just think about this, you come back to that sense memory. It and really is a sense it. memory. And I again, that's very much. I'm grateful, my God, as an actor. It that's my gold. You know, that's my that's my mind that has all my all my jewels in it. Really, which I mean, that makes uh, the production design to me and The Shining seem all that more. Um, Great because yep. they did have to create it. it wasn't a wasn't a place they had to make a place haunted, right. which is it feels nearly impossible. And those sides of beef when they go into this freezer, yes. that 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 that's another one again. It's not cold in here, but I just got really cold. <laughs> it's hot. I know. I'm really? sweating, but no, shoot. but I just I'm now freezing to death. But I mean, <laughs> that moment of I mean, and that's all that's all set design. You know, putting like what what could be it could have just been frozen. You know, vegetables and canned goods, but they have these giant slabs of meat and cows, like dead cows hanging. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's all um, it all feeds into the atmosphere of the film, which then feeds into your emotional, you know, your emotional ex- experience. I, I, it's uh, acting is, is magic to me. Uh, <laughs> it is to me, too. I, I, it really is still. I mean, I still feel that way about it. I, I, it's um, it, and to let your. Oh, I don't even know how to really express this because it is—it does get me very emotional. Having a profession where you are allowed to explore your deepest fears, deepest joys, deepest—I mean, where else do you have that luxury in life? I mean, you can't do it in real life because yeah. people will admonish you for it, and people will sometimes punish you for it for expressing how you really feel about something. Yeah, you can't do that in an office. We'll say. Yeah, so I'm feel gifted in the best sense, and I'm. 
beyond gratitude for everything that I have as an artist and, and as a person, you know, that I've learned along the way. And you have learned quite a bit. Uh, we want to uh, take a quick break, but I want to get back into um, uh, a, a little bit of what it means to to appear in iconic films, because Shelley Duvall had some thoughts on that, too. And so we'll take a quick break and we'll come right back to that. Hello, I'm Carrie Poppy. And I'm Ross Blotcher, hosts of MaximumFun.org's Ono, Ross, and Carrie. We wanted to tell you the good news that our podcast is now weekly. Yeah, weekly. On Ono, Ross, and Carrie, we don't make extraordinary claims. We investigate them. We go undercover with fringe religious groups, investigate paranormal claims, and participate in pseudoscientific medical treatments and report our findings to you. In a time where alternative facts reign supreme, we cut through the murky spin to give you the real deal on topics like UFOs, the anti-vaccination movement, Scientology, and even apocalyptic churches. We're even undercover for some very exciting investigations right now. Well, not right now, right now. Yeah, that would be unwise. That's Ono, Ross, and Carrie at MaximumFun.org. We show up so you don't have to. And welcome back. You're listening to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm here today with the lovely Lynn Shay. And we are talking about The Shining. And one of the things that I wanted to cover was what it's like to appear in a film that is iconic. And maybe what it's like to not know that the film you're appearing in is going to be iconic. Because Shelley Duvall had said a few years ago in an interview that she was actually still kind of shocked when she watches this film, when she hears people talking about it, that, you know, she didn't understand that it would be so fully ingrained in the cultural consciousness. She knew Kubrick, obviously. So it's like, okay, yeah, this is going to be a great film and, you know, people will like it. But to the extent that it is ingrained in our consciousness, she was not prepared for, I don't think. And um, it's still probably the role that people most know her for, not her Altman films. You know, you have to be like a cinephile to know those, you know, like some going back to Three Women or something. But uh, this is the one that had the impact and it was in horror genre, you know? And I was wondering, when you sign on to do things like Nightmare on Elm Street or Critters or, I mean, even comedies, Dumb and Dumber and Kingpin, um, did it ever enter your mind that you were going to be part of something that was going to become very iconic? No. <laughs> <laughs> Plain and simple, literally no. Going back to starting with Nightmare on Elm Street, um, that was actually my big brother. I don't know how many people do know this. Uh, Bob Shea is my brother. He started. He produced a lot of great stuff. He started directing he, recently too. I right, think. Yeah. but he also he started New Line Cinema. I mean, New Line is different. It's all it's Warner Brothers now. It's a different deal. I think in general, you never know how the public is going to receive something, and timing yeah. is everything. To mm-hmm. be honest, I honestly believe that. And even to go back to um, uh, to Insidious. Mm-hmm. Um, Oh, yeah, what did you think when you – because Insidious blew up. That was Totally. A... But before that, I'll go back to Kingpin. Okay. Which I – as I told in this interview, I, I fought so hard to have the opportunity. Who I never thought – we never thought that movie would become iconic or something about Mary. The Fairly mm-hmm. Brothers – the first three Fairly Brothers films, Dumb and Dumber, Something About Mary and Kingpin – are, will go down still in history as three of the funniest movies ever made. Mm-hmm. I think that's for, that's not, you know that's the truth. Yeah, and no one knew that either. You know, I think when you make a film in general, 
it's like you say, Insidious exploded. You don't really know what how timing is going to work with content. I think there's an element of that as well. The, the, the audiences are hungry for certain things at certain times. And I think sometimes something hits harder than it does at other times. People have asked me about Elise, and I'll tell you what I think is one of the appeals of Elise is that she's a giver. She's not a taker. Mm-hmm. And we are right now in a world which is all about taking. And I really think that has impact. Young girls are in love with my character. Yes. They call me the old lady. I don't mind. It's fine. You know, whatever. I am an old lady. So it's like, so, but I mean, there's some hunger they have. Like I was saying this at another interview. It's the iPhone. It's not the we phone, the us phone, the them phone. It's the I. It's about me. It's all about me. And Elise is all about you. She's all about someone else and about mm-hmm. helping someone else. And as corny as that may sound, there's some aspect of those qualities that I think are extremely – people are hungry for. And it's sort of couched in this beautiful story, which I think Lee has woven, especially this last one, is a really fantastic story that has implication of family abuse, yeah. child abuse. Um, Elise really comes into her own in, in Insidious 4, and it's it's nice – I mean – I think younger audiences, specifically younger women, are looking for more mature women on screen to look up to. You're seeing a lot of women who are um, over the age of 50 who are getting roles, and I think there's a reason for that. I think that's true. You know, they they want to see someone who has had some experience and has just has come through it and has confidence. And and at least Rainier and and your your you as an actor you know you can feel that confidence on the screen. I know as a I know as a film critic and Alonzo Duralde and I talk about this as well. He he's on the Who Shot You podcast with me here. Um, when you show up on in a cast, even in a small role, we felt. We feel like we're in good hands. Oh, that's a great thing. Thank you so it, much. It's, it's a nice thing as a critic to to be able to connect with an actor on, on that level where you're like, oh, thank you. I trust you in this movie to make some good choices. Um, and, and that's something that I, I think, uh, you know, every generation is looking for. We don't want like the fly by the seat of your pants kind of thing. Right. I think we want someone with experience. And to talk about, you know, Iconic is a very again. I think that has to do with time and place a bit. You know, um, sometimes things find their place later. Like you know, for instance, um, you know, for instance, Kingpin. That movie made zero money the mm-hmm. first. I remember going to see it. I was so excited because after all, I'd been through. There were like four people in the audience. It was opening weekend. It closed after the third week, I think, or second week. They just pulled it. Yeah. And now that's one of the – I still get no recognition in Ralph's. I mean – In Ralph's. <laughs> really? Oh, my God. It's that woman. <laughs> and then I never know which one they're talking about. <laughs> you know, which now has become fabulous because also Detroit Rock City has this mom Oh, Detroit in Rock it. City, the mom. Yes. And that also has become Which you're from Detroit, of, which is nice. Right. So you get to do a little – a little, a little Detroit, a, a little bit of, uh, uh, yeah. It was. I loved that making that as well. But that's also found its place in iconography. You know, there's. So I think. It, How are you getting all these specific? Like, there's a lot of movies that you've been in that are that are iconic. Your care. It, it's lucky, lucky. I just wonder. I mean, maybe people think that like like they know that you're game. They're like, okay, this is a woman who's like, like an actor who is ready to just do whatever. And well, that's true. <laughs> and we can play. We can see what happens, you know. 
I hope that's true. I feel that way. I mean, my work is the one place that we were talking about. You can really go all the way. You know, you don't have to, you have to still shape what you're doing. It's not just, you know, vomiting every time you, you know, you have a, a role. You have to go into story and what elements bring forth elements in yourself that create the story and the storyline and the character line. Mm-hmm. But there's, I'm game for anything. I am game for just about anything that has to do with story that's safe. You know, I don't want to get hurt either. That's that's uh, sometimes on set you got to be careful because you'll be asked to do something and you know again your 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 desire is to please. I mean, mine is always as an actress. That's part of my job. I want to please the director too and I want to please the people around me. But you have to have good sense. That's a, another thing to always remember. If something doesn't look safe or it doesn't feel safe, mm-hmm. you must speak up. You must speak up because they're in the heat of the moment. You know, they're just trying to get their shot. Listen, there's been some, you know, not to mention uh, some of the sad things that have happened over time in film. But, um, Mm -hmm. you know, the Twilight Zone film, I mean, there's bad stuff that happens because people don't speak up. And um, that's as much as game as I am. I mean, you know, if you want to you want to bury me alive, make sure I got a straw I can breathe out. (laughs) You know, whatever it may mean, that's like, you know, make sure you're safe, but I'll do anything. (laughs) Um, I want to get into one last thing, and that would be on really just the genre of horror in general, because um, there there were rumors that Kubrick really didn't, he wasn't sold on doing the adaptation of King's novel because he wasn't into horror. Um, oh, I didn't know that. That's, a, that's interesting. But he also, he was, he was also up to direct The Exorcist, but turned it down because he couldn't produce it, which meant that he couldn't, you know, really own the material and kind of rewrite it for himself. So it seemed like he changed his mind when um, Stephen King had agreed to let him also write the script and produce uh, the Shining, which is like okay, yeah, he'll he'll venture stay in into control. This. He can yeah. stay in control. So then he can do horror the way that he, he wanted to do horror. Um, and your you know your career traverses the spectrum of of movies. You've done dramas. You've done um, you know big budget comedies. You've done everything. But you know people remember you a lot for horror. And I'm just wondering, do you feel like? It has pigeonholed you at all, or has it opened up doors for you? I think a little bit of both. Um, I get offered a lot of horror stuff. You know, there's these horror conventions and all this stuff people do. I'm not. Um, I don't. I def- I defy pigeonhole. <laughs> I mean, just in general, don't put me in a hole. <laughs> but, again, <laughs> but again, if you're going to bury her alive, you're going to give, give me a straw. Give yes. me something to bail myself out. <laughs> but but. Um, I mean, it has both good and bad things. I mean, you know, people um, uh, having notoriety of any kind is a treasure. I mean, I and I'm totally aware of that. The people that that actually, I've had people who know my name, which is even really, are you Lynn Shea? And I go, oh, who, who cares? <laughs> I mean, but but so um, th- there's there's a positive to having a genre that people associate you with, and also I must say, the horror family are a, a wonderful bunch of loyal people who mm-hmm. are really kind and not at all scary, and um, and and really root for you. It's it's a a, a very it's a very positive group of people. Which is funny. It's like, it is funny. You'd think just the opposite. That we love be... murder and, and cheering people on. Right, exactly. <laughs> Those are the two elements that keep us going. But um, on the other hand, I mean, I consider myself an actor, you know, or actress, whatever you want to say, um, who can do – I'll try to do 
try to tell a story. I want to be a good storyteller. Mm-hmm. And so for me, genre doesn't matter. To me, it's it really doesn't. It's like what's if it's a good story, good characters, good people, that's, that's a sales point for me. Um, I really love storytelling, and that's why I'm an actress. I, I go back when I was little. I mean, people say, when did you decide you wanted to be an actress? I never decided. I never re- – until I graduated University of Michigan in art history, mm-hmm. and I thought, when do I get to be in a play? And I thought, wait a minute. I'm at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in the Registrar's Office filing. I'm not going to be doing a play. But wait, maybe. And I ended up going to Columbia back to graduate school in theater arts. Mm-hmm. And so then I was in New York, and I segued from that into theater. But I never really thought about being an actress. And then I never thought about being a film actress. I don't have a vision. I never had a vision for myself. Isn't that crazy? I all these people that you visualize what you want, and you be, you know what? Put one foot in front of the other. Be lucky enough to have a passion, and to move toward it. That's the only thing I can possibly suggest to people. I think the visualization takes you out of the moment and mm-hmm. makes you forget about the stuff you got to do to get there. Sometimes, yeah. And if you were like if you were like Lynch, that would mean that you you might miss the opportunity to be in these iconic films because they happen to arise, and you just say yes, and you just say yes. Yeah. That's a really beautiful point for us to to uh, quit Crap it today. I really appreciate your coming on, Lynn. It was so wonderful having you. I have on. to tell you something. April's eyes are tearing. <laughs> So sad it's coming to an no, end. No, she's just feeling emotional. I love it. <laughs> and her cheeks are very rosy. I'm drunk. No, right. no. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Switchblade Sisters. Next week, we'll be talking to the actor, writer, and director Amber Benson, who you may know best as Tara from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. She's on the show talking about the underseen Night of the Comet. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts if you do, we'll read it on air. Domestic Dork says, I don't even especially like genre films, but I sure am happy to have April Wolf in my podcast library. Thoughtful insights from April and conversations with great lady lady filmmakers make this one of my new favorites. It wasn't easy to get through the Bone Tomahawk episode, but I'm glad I stuck with it. Yeah, it's actually really hard to get through that episode and that movie. It's very rough. Uh, Cat Cheese says, I never knew I needed a show about genre films until I heard episode one. This is such a delight to listen to every week and meaning in flames says being a socially conscious horror genre fan is a tough spot to be in sometimes i hear you this podcast does a great job of walking that tightrope and critiquing from a place of love horror and cinema more generally needs more voices like this thank you so much meaning in flames and then e marie says love this podcast wish you made t-shirts so i could be walking billboard for love for switchblade sisters i i would also like a t-shirt we'll talk if you want to let us know what you think of the show, you can tweet at us at, at SwitchbladePod or email us at SwitchbladeSisters at MaximumFun.org and check out our Facebook group, Facebook.com slash groups slash SwitchbladeSisters. Our producer is Casey O'Brien. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. And this is a production of MaximumFun.org. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.